Welcome, everybody. Welcome. I'm Shaylin Svinth. And I'm Aubrey Beyer. And you're listening to The Resolute. I did it it again. I don't know. You left me solo. I left you solo. It's fine. Bye-bye, bud. (laughs) I don't mind. So weird. I don't know. I forgot. (laughs) Shaylin is due in 12 days. 12 days. 12 days of baby. 12 days of baby. That's right. Well, 12 days of baby in the belly, technically. Yeah, yeah. Could happen at any time. So we're getting pretty excited over here. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to meet her. I know. Oh, I. It's just so exciting at this stage when you start to think about what they're going to look like. Yeah, what are they going to look it, like? How big is she going to be? I'm mm-hmm. so excited. I know. I'm excited. I'm excited to see how the other baby does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. Her. It's going to be... I'm excited about that, too, to see his reaction. If you might be able to hear him down there. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So cute. So, okay. I want to see if you can finish this sentence. Okay. (laughs) Please, sir. Can I have some more? (laughs) (laughs) Was that like Oliver Twist or something? Yes. Okay. Yes. That was excellent. <laughs> in my head, I was like, "No, surely that cannot oh, be." There's like a fruit fly in here, and it keeps... <laughs> I don't think it landed on me, but I think I thought it did, and yep. now I'm freaking out over here. Uh, just so everybody knows, it's the middle of December. Why is there a fruit fly? We have no clue. We're trying our best here. <laughs> <laughs> so, I today we're going to talk about Charles Dickens. Okay, I thought you were going to who... say Charles Manson. It's like hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe I shouldn't have that reaction. I mean, oh, what a serious conversation. Oh, my gosh. No, not Charles Manson. Okay, That's funny. Okay. But so I had never, I've actually, it's kind of, I feel a little embarrassed to say this, but because he, he truly is one of the most well-known authors, Yeah. period. Yeah. And... I had never read any of his work. <laughs> Me neither. Okay. I'm right there with you. Okay. I feel a little less weird about that. Yeah. Everybody I, knows about it. Everybody knows about it. And even like you being able to finish yeah. that sentence yeah. says a lot about right. his writing and how prolific. If I've never even read it. Yeah. Me, and I hadn't either. Yeah. 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 Um, but I've seen a lot of it and there's so many different adaptations to his stories. Right. And things like that. Because um, well, he, yeah, he wrote A Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. right? Our classic Muppets is like the best <laughs> version, right? I <laughs> beg to differ. Oh. And I will say that the Black Adder Ooh. Christmas Carol is Never probably the best. I'll have to look into this. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay. It stars Rowan Atkinson. Oh, I mean, come on. I yeah, know. He's great. He's fabulous. Yes, he wrote A Christmas Carol. Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, a ton of short stories and novels from like smaller stories. Um, They would call them periodicals Mm -hmm. that would come out in magazines. Because he like, I think I've heard this before. Christian, I think, has read a lot of his work. Yeah. And um, at the time, you got paid for the word, right? And so he has like these kind of long Mm -hmm. going you know, yeah. Yeah. And whereas today, I feel like a lot of people write, be concise, 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 you yeah. know, and that's funny. It's, yeah. It's a funny, I like to think about that. Like, I know. What I a great too. gig. Yeah. Oh, by the word? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Well, I got this, you know, like, it's great. So uh, the reason I 
um, chose him was because I was watching a Black Adder Christmas Carol Very nice. the other day, and I was just thinking like, this is so it's so iconic the story of a Christmas Carol. Yeah, and um, all of his stories. There's another one called Bleak House. All of his stories have just this element of dreary mm-hmm. dreariness to them that end with such like positive endings and it says a lot about who he is and I wanted to uh, just dive into his story like you know what his story is I have not read he has a semi it's 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 not it's like an unofficial autobiography Mm -hmm. that I'll talk about a little later but I ended up reading Oliver Twist and then after that, I was like, okay, I, I need to know more about yeah. this guy. Um, okay, so I'm going to set a scene for you. Okay. And then we'll dive into the life of Charles Dickens. The Blackening Warehouse was the last house on the left-hand side of the way at Old Hungford Stairs. It was a crazy, tumble-down old house, a budding of course on the river, and literally overrun with rats. Mm. Its wainscoted rooms and its rotted floors and staircase and the old gray rats swarming down in the cellars and the sound of their squeaking and scuffling coming up and down the stairs all the time and the dirt and decay of the place rise up visibly before me as if I were there again. The counting house was on the first floor looking over the coal barges and the river. There was a recess in it in which I was to sit and work. My work was to cover the pots of paste blackening. Um, paste blackening, it, it was, it's like a shoe shine, essentially, mm. that would blacken your shoes. Right. So if you got scuffs on them, you would rub this um, paste on there. I lost my spot. Okay. Um, my work was to cover the pots of paste blackening, first with a piece of oil paper and then with a piece of blue paper to tie them around with a string, and then to clip the paper close and neat all around until it looked as smart as a pot of ointment from an apothecary's shop. When a certain number of grosses of pots had attained this pitch of perfection, I was to paste on each a printed label and then go on with more pots. So that's a little snippet into the young life of Charles Dickens. Oh, dang. And he started working at the blackening shop at age 12 oh no oh no i know no and that's the the rats oh doesn't it just sound oh gosh it's so miserable (laughs) it really is yeah yeah so charles dickens was born february 7th in 1812 in hampshire england which is in the southeast area of england he was the second child born of eight children that's a lot of kids, man. A lot of kids. He probably had a lot of work to do. No wonder he was working at 12. I <laughs> know. <laughs> well, you'll find out why. I know. It's not great. Um, his mother, Elizabeth, and his dad, John, had been married for quite some time and had built, started to really build their family. When he was born, the, his dad was working as a clerk in the Navy, and he was stationed in that area. They had kind of moved around because he was working for the Navy. And they finally settled in Chatham, Kent. And they were there for several years. His fondest childhood memories 
were during this time. He describes himself as kind of a wisp of a child, yeah. you know, like not yeah. very. He he said he says he wasn't very. He appeared to not be well cared for. Right. But he's he just has, like a scrawny type of. Yeah, yeah. kind of a. I'm just imagining this like lanky, yeah, kind of scraggly kid. Yeah. But um, I mean, when you're two of eight, that can happen. <laughs> you know, there's a lot. <laughs> like, perhaps like, you are a little hungry. <laughs> well, and, and the just like so, I feel like the more siblings you have, you're just so much more active. You know, you're it's doing so, true. so much you're more. Running you're running the wharfs. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing here, but <laughs> wharfs. You know, always in yeah, like hopping England around and, and like that yeah. <laughs> You know, I just imagine so them good. like as little pack playing and yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, very just being active, busy, yeah. very active. Yeah, but that's, um, that's how we were growing up too. <laughs> and yeah, too. and the pictures, it's like, good lord, you know, <laughs> look at me now. You'd never know. <laughs> oh gosh, I know. When when we were kids, we were outside ninety percent of the time. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> when we would go to my aunt's house for dinner she'd be like everybody out like we would be kicked outside and we had All to day. play outside mm-hmm. only come in to use the restroom and she, get your water and you know? even then they would like carry us to the bathroom because they didn't want us tracking <laughs> yeah because we were just you know yeah. in the woods a grubby playing mud yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly <laughs> did we and there was only three of us that's funny um so other than his appearance like his childhood he mentions was lovely you know it was kind of idyllic he loved being outdoors he was a a very avid reader which I love I love it when kids are avid readers none of my kids really are yeah they'll read but I kind of have to force it and I do think so much of that is our era right that we're in but it's not the hot thing to do. I know. You have to know the ending of something in 20 seconds, you know, like you can't, yeah, to take the time to read a book is a lot. It is. I think that's a good point because I think there's this like instant satisfaction. Yeah. That the instant gratification mentality. Yeah. That our culture is moved towards, especially in America. Mm-hmm. I'm sure other places too, but I can only speak for here, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's unfortunate because, oh gosh, I've, especially since starting this podcast, yeah. I've read so many amazing yeah. books that I never would have picked up. Right. And when you're diving in and you're dwelling in a place in the story for yeah. so long, it affects you so differently than... It's immersive. It's immersive. Yeah. That's, you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, that's cool. So I can imagine why he would love right. reading, you yeah. know, like I loved reading too when I was younger. Me too. Well, now, but yeah. I, you know, I was one of those kids. Um, his, one of his favorite stories was the Arabian Nights. Okay. And yeah. I've never, that's another one. That's another one I've never read. I mean, yeah. Either. I yeah. know. I, this, this book has been referenced several times through different researches okay. that I've done yeah and it has really piqued my interest it maybe it'll be the next one that I read because yeah. I in between I finished Les Miserables oh wow and, um good on you which was amazing uh, amazing someday I'll get I there I really loved it <laughs> and I, I then I finished a book for our book club and then there was a, a book that I pre-read for our book club because I've 
the last few times that I've chosen, they've been duds. Oh, <laughs> so that I was like, sucks. I'm going to read this like first and know. decide if it's yeah. worthy. And it was great. Um, so I just finished like three in a row and okay. then Oliver Twist. And okay. now I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do that. Maybe yeah. that'll be the well, next one. I was going to say, wasn't it, you said Charles Dickens, right? Or mm-hmm. no, what am I on about? We're talking about Charles Dickens. Did he, was he the one who wrote about Helen Keller? So he didn't write about Helen Keller, but you you are on the right track. He had come, he had gone to that school for the blind, the Perkins right. School That's right. Institute for the Blind on his second visit to America. Right. Okay. And then he wrote about it in American Notes. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I was but like, yeah, I you're remember right. yeah. like a connection here. Mm-hmm. So how fun. That was like a good it. connection. Um, okay. So with his dad being a clerk through the Navy, it afforded them to be able to send Charles to a private education, which is incredible. Um, They moved in 1822, so Charles would have been 10. They moved to Camden Town in London, and the family did. Charles ended up finishing out his school year at the private school he was going to before joining them. Unfortunately, with a family of eight and trying to send his kids to private school they were very much living beyond their means and john had been overspending by a lot oh dear and his he ended up racking up quite a few debts not just through like school you know like sending the kids to school yeah because i'm sure i'm assuming he sent charles older sibling to school and maybe you know one of his younger ones too if he's 10, you know, probably at least three kids in private yeah. school. And back then, if you racked up any amount of debts, you could immediately be imprisoned. That's crazy. I know. That's extreme. I know. So I, I get it, though, like, especially in that era, because I don't think like, yeah, unless you were sending your kids to a school, there wasn't any kind of really formal education. Right. And so how valuable that must have been it's like i kind of get it even if right, it's like, like to i'm not gonna kids... be able to pay for this but <laughs> we're gonna do it anyway you know? i was thinking about that too because i know in my mind i'm thinking okay a similar era here would have been kind of i mean this is before like little house on the prairie times right but early america in the 1800s they would have you know like little schoolhouses. i don't know really anything about like the education system in England at the time. Right. But you're probably very right. There wasn't really if you're not paying for a private education, there could be the possibility of no education at all. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not like that like, it was that just open huge, to the public. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, cause I, I think too, like I always I don't know a lot about it either, but like it was always, yeah, the wealthy class would mm-hmm. be educated. And if you weren't wealthy, you were at work literally somewhere. uneducated mm-hmm. and no opportunity to no, educate yeah to yeah. be educated no chance for it so oh. which is like what a weird thing to think about i think we undervalue like there's an importance now on education and you know i'm not super into how everything is run in the public school yeah. system but um but it it's good that it's a focus you know like yeah. i think it makes a really big difference for a yeah. lot of people and I think that's really cool. I do too. So his many debts 
landed John in um, the Marshall Sea Debtors Prison in 1824. Crazy. So at this point, Charles is 12. I looked into what these debtor prisons were, and they were basically lodging houses. And you oftentimes your family would come and live with you. It, it, this is it's messed up. So your family would come and live with you in this lodging house, but you still have to pay for rent, food and clothes. So I think that's but kind you're of in how prison, it, so you're not working. So you can't work. Yeah. I think that's kind of how it is today in prison. Like you go, you leave and you have like a debt that you have to pay back for your time spent in prison. Like oh, I so could crazy. totally be wrong about that, but I think that's how it that, works. Interesting. It's just crazy. So yeah, you're like, how, how, how are possible? you supposed to, how do you ever get out and get back on top? Right. And especially you don't. for this guy, like you're being punished because of your debts. And then they're just adding more debt onto you. And you right. have literally no way to, to get out of that. To, and the, no way to make any other... It's a terrible cycle. It's it's crazy. It's, a, it's really terrible. It's nobody sat down and thought, wait. <laughs> like how... Yeah, there was how not... This and this was before... There was like some um, prison reforms right. that occurred after this time. But during this time, wow. this is the circumstances that they're in. And to like... You know, on the one hand, it's like, well, they get to be with their family, but I have to imagine that's not a great situation for any of them for children to be living in, especially. Yeah. Mm. Mainly, mainly these would be debtors, so they weren't necessarily put in the same right. prison place as like hard criminals, hard, like, yeah, yeah, hard criminals. Yeah. Um, but like I said you know they're having to pay for all this right. and if you have a family of 10 yeah that you're now trying to like think of all the food that that and co- expenses yeah. that that's racking up yeah. when you don't have a way to pay for that right and yeah that's crazy there. how weird i know and so I, I don't know if they were at all able to seek any outside work it's it just seems like this terrible cycle you know was it like you do work for me and I pay you, you know, one pence a month or something. Well, kind so of thing. sometimes, so the jailers would often take great advantage of the prisoners because right. they could, nobody really cared and they could get away with it easily. And so often if, if they received any donations, the jailers would skim off the top. Take it for themselves. First and foremost. Oh. And then they would leave the, like the worst, you know, for instance, if, there was a donation made of food and right. meat and bread and cheeses. I'll take the goods. They they would give the, the bread to the yeah. <laughs> yeah you know this the crusty bread to the prisoners. <laughs> Only and the heel end the of the bread. Stuff. That's messed up. I know dude. it's super messed up. Oh my gosh! They would also sometimes put the prisoners in irons for just for fun minor minor infractions or maybe no reason at all. What the? Heck? And then they would charge the prisoners to have the irons removed. Yep, that sounds about right, doesn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> just it was called the easement of irons. Isn't that <laughs> just a pay for it? <laughs> it's like a horrible game so... of Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Honestly. Wow. So basically families had to try to pay for their prisoner. Right. To you know like release pay them. their right. So not only do you have these debts that you are supposed to be paying that landed you in prison to begin with, 
you now have the debt of being imprisoned. Just racking it up every day. I know. That's crazy. So there was one case of this man um, who had been imprisoned and before his, he had a trial, but he was imprisoned for over six months, found not guilty. He still had owed. He still had to pay. For all of that time. We were just talking about internet bills and phone bills and all this. And so it's like, you're like, I'm not paying that. That wasn't me, bro. (laughs) I know. (laughs) do that. But then if he chose not to pay, he would end up being actually put in for, I know. my gosh. And then it would be like a weird, like, well, you really didn't pay this one. Can you believe it? I mean, imagine being sent to a debtor's prison, found not guilty, (laughs) But now you owe them however many, you know. Well, we like, paid for oh you still gosh, while you were here. It's unbelievable. I hate that. Prison so, is such a scam, dude. At this point, 12-year-old Charles, was li- he moves in with a family friend. I think the younger children went with his mom, Elizabeth, to go live with John That's at the debtor's awesome. prison. And some of the older kids were kind of dispersed among different family members because... <laughs> they could work right so um oh no i know i had to like go send the children to go pay off the debt yeah oh that's like so messed up i know what a horrible system i know it's really terrible so charles would come to the debtor's prison and stay on the weekends but then he would work at the blackening warehouse for 10 hour days oh my putting labels on jars oh i hate that in those awful conditions that we were talking about the mold the rats i know wow it's um he said this experience deeply changed him and he spent his life writing about and pushing for and bringing awareness to like labor conditions and just the socioeconomic issues of the time and right. what can be done about it because he said it was just he couldn't believe this is a quote from him how i could have been so easily cast away at such an age yeah is beyond him i mean yeah. it just made it was so disheartening and then to further the insult his mother didn't like he would be sent you know he'd come and stay for the weekends and she would help send him back to work and didn't like demand that he stay with them yeah and it really really affected him and his view on women right um it he didn't he cared deeply about women but i think it really just affected his um view on how his mother treated him right and what a mother figure should be right and uh Another quote from him. He says, I never afterwards forgot. I never shall forget. I never can forget that my mother was warm for me being sent back. Yeah. Like looked forward to him going back. Right. It's just. And and it's so hard because you have to think like, you know, for her, she's probably trying to get everybody out of this awful situation. And and so it's like, I don't know that sucks. She probably, I mean, from, yeah, exactly. Like from her her perspective she has yeah the entire family her husband's imprisoned she can't necessarily work yeah. i'm assuming because of all the kids right 
and she's and just, probably she's there's thinking, no opportunity anyway really for, true yeah <laughs> for know, a like, woman with like very like five know. kids that she, hey I, I have to bring my kids with me right. but you know like yeah yeah it's and you think a about, very difficult situation yeah. it's just sad because you don't i'm sure she didn't realize yeah that her actions affected him that way right you know right that's just the way her attitude about it yeah came off as being looking forward to him working loves it yeah yeah it's It's sad really sad and maybe she did i mean i you know yeah exactly but it's hard it's so hard the whole situation is yeah so difficult well i think yeah too if her i have to imagine like at this time like the mother usually ran a household as well and so i think you know, if any of us were put in such a position where suddenly your husband can't, you know, do the work or whatever, and you're like, okay, I gotta make some decisions here. And like, obviously today, it's not sending your children away to go and work, right, you know? Right. But we have other ways to yeah. to do things. But what a weird. I don't know. It also shows you just how far, like, I don't know. You can have a really good life, but it can really be taken away and just so a quickly. Moment, you yeah. Know? So, so quickly with things that are completely out of your right. control you know yeah. yeah it's very sad very sad so he ended up working at the blackening warehouse for over three years wow. and after that was able to finally go back to school and he went to wellington house academy here he said it was just a really terrible terrible experience okay. The entire school was completely run down mm. and decrepit. The headmasters were brutal. Yeah. And just l- rejoiced in punishing. <laughs> like, it just sounds like you uh, know those the, type of people that are just sinister. Yeah. You know, what'd you say? The trunch The trunch bowl. <laughs> yes. Ooh. Get into the chokey. <laughs> I love, like, the image of her fleeing the little girl by the braids. Oh, gosh. That's my favorite. <laughs> oh, Trunchbull. Oh, she's the worst. Yeah. I, that's one of my favorite things to say to my tumblers yeah. is I'll joke and be like, oh, kids are the worst. Glad I never was one. <laughs> and we just, you know, they laugh. Yeah. I think it's so funny. Um, so after going to that, attending that school in 1827, he was able to get a job as a junior clerk. Okay. And I think just his avid reading, he clearly had such a thirst to be fed with knowledge. And, you know, he was always writing little short stories, even before getting the job as the clerk, just writing, putting his thoughts on paper. And um, so a clerk, you know, it gives counsel to lawyers and does a lot of the research into the legal system the grunt work the grunt work yes exactly (laughs) um he was only 15 when he got the job there and he worked there for a year during that time he took advantage of some of the training that he received because they taught him shorthand right and he ended up using that to his advantage and became a freelance reporter okay he wasn't afraid to go out right go different places by himself I mean, he'd kind of been on his own yeah. in a sense since he was 12 right. at this point. Yeah. And so um, he would go and report on legal proceedings and then sell his report to different newspapers. Nice. Or, okay. uh, like, yeah, newspapers, that's, I guess. That's a good right. gig. Mm-hmm. And he did that for f- over four years. Wow. So it was 
lucra- lucrative enough for right. him that he that was, was worth doing. making a profit. Yeah. yeah. Um, at age 18, he fell in love for the first time. Oh, wow. And her name was Mary, and her parents completely disapproved of the relationship because oh, it, it, I'm assuming she was well-to-do because right. they sent her to Paris. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, no, you're not. You're not going to hang out with this ragamuffin. <laughs> you're going to go to Paris to do finishing school. <laughs> the ragamuffin. Oh. <laughs> Poor, poor Charles. Poor Charles. <laughs> so sad, so you know, really especially it's like young love and your first love. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just, they just send her away. <laughs> he really loved the theater. And in his young adult years, he would go almost every single day wow. to the theater. Awesome. And he would mimic, he loved to like mimic different, um, clients from the lawyers that he would work alongside and he really learned kind of expressive caricatures and that sort of thing um and initially he had planned to be a performer in that capacity but um he had this opportunity to audition for a play and he ended up missing the audition because he was sick Oh, no. I know. And, you know, as you can imagine, these plays, a lot would go into them. So it's going to be a long time before another opportunity would arise. But instead, he decided to start working on writing. In 1833, his first story was submitted for publication in a magazine. And it was called A Dinner at Poplar Walk. I don't know. Poplar (laughs) is a weird word. I think I'm saying it. Poplar? Poplar? Like the Probably tree? Probably poplar. <laughs> I don't know why I was saying poplar. Poplar, poplar walk. <laughs> and that was um, submitted into, it was called Monthly Magazine. Um, <laughs> what a terrible name for a magazine. <laughs> m- monthly mag. It, like, none of uh, that even sounds we'll interesting. Monthly. <laughs> I know. Like, you could have been like. bland people or something. Oh, I don't gosh. Know. I, so I love the, what's the one that's like with a Z? gazette the gazette i love the gazette yeah sounds so thrilling like mm-hmm. i want to read that not yeah. monthly magazine yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's really funny it just sounds so dry like yeah, yeah just a report on the happenings you know <laughs> mrs windsor fell down the stairs <laughs> <laughs> these these are the stories being published in the monthly magazine okay <laughs> Mr. Marjorie Brown was seen with Jonathan Kensington yesterday. Without afternoon. a chauffeur. <laughs> oh so my funny. god. Anyway. That is so funny. <laughs> Mrs. Wilmington has eggs for sale. <laughs> uh, two pence a piece. <laughs> two pence a piece. I hope that's like a ludicrous amount of money to pay for an egg. <laughs> I know we're gonna have to look it up. It'll be like five thousand dollars or something <laughs> stupid like that. So, um, his freelance reporting t- allowed him to travel all over Britain mm. to report on political debates and other things. It sounds so fun. I was gonna say, you know, it's super like fun. that's an exciting life I to do just. That. It's really cool. Yeah. In eighteen thirty three. He started writing some sketches, so like short little stories, um, and they were called Sketches by Boz, 
was what he wrote them under. Okay. And I love this so much. This was for the Morning Chronicle. Okay. Much better than monthly. Yeah. Monthly. Magazine. magazine. <laughs> um, but so he got the name Boz from a nickname that he had given one of his brothers. His brother's name was Augustus. Mm. And somehow he ended up getting the nickname from Charles. He would call him Moses. Okay. So I don't know if it was like Augustus, Moses. And then he would call him Bozus because if you said it with, if you had a cold, right. you couldn't really say the M. So it would right. be like Bozus. Right. And then Bo- Bose, or sorry, yeah. Um, sketches by Bose. Bose became the nickname. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. That? I, I love I nicknames like that. Oh my. I, our family is like the master of the most random nicknames because of things like that. Like it's this long, so many times we'll, we'll all be like, why do we call our right, cat that? Right. And we can't even like think back, trace it back. So yeah. Funny. So like, my one my sister, for instance, one of my nicknames for her is Ramicorn. I don't even know. Who knows? And then my other sister, I call Poppet. Yeah. Like you know, hello, Poppet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then some of our animals, we have a cat named Kai, but we call him Puadinga. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but there probably is like an Augustus yeah. Moses Bozus Bose, yeah, some sort yeah. of tracing back but i love i love it when there's like such a random (laughs) and i can just imagine it you know you're like if but if you said it with a cold like boses (laughs) just imagining charles dickens like boses that's funny (laughs) oh my gosh okay so the morning chronicle editor at the time was a man named george hogarth Hogarth and <laughs> that's a great name. It is a great Hogarth. name. Okay, I know. I like it. Um, Hogarth and Dickens worked really closely together, and through George Hogarth, Charles would come to meet his daughters. He had several daughters, but the one that really caught Charles Dickens' eye was his 19-year-old daughter named Catherine, and he and Catherine started a romantic interest that lasted quite some time before they would get engaged so they do get engaged very nice um another acquaintance of charles dickens was a man named william harrison ainsworth and ainsworth he was a bachelor and he had just this kind of bachelor pad that became an artistic den for people would you know Charles would go there, many other writers would go there, and they would collaborate on ideas. Um, I, just, I just love, I'm just imagining, like, this little smoking room, you know, yeah. with, like, the, all those fancy plush chairs with the yeah. buttons. Through that connection, through these members of this kind of unofficial club, right. if you will, um, Charles met Seymour, or Robert Seymour, and Seymour would make these engraved illustrations and you can find some of these online, and they're fantastic. They're just really, really interesting illustrations. And Charles Dickens was hired to write stories to match. Okay. So That's like, cool. Yeah. So there would be, like, the picture, and then he would come up with, 
like a little script. I think that's so interesting because mm-hmm. like that reminds me like they would th- that was like an assignment in school. You know what I mean? Like here's a picture. Now write a story yeah. to go with it. But it's like this was like somebody's job. Like mm-hmm. that's so weird to think about. You know? I know that there wasn't. Yeah, it is weird to think about. A different time. Yeah. Simpler time. That's so fun. You can't do something like that anymore, really. <laughs> I mean, kind of, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you, I I don't hear of that happening. No. no. Usually, it seems like it's the other way around. Yeah. Like an illustrator would create illustrations to go Based with a story. Based off the writing. Yeah. 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 Whereas this is like the opposite. It's fun. It's fun. It's cool. I like it. Did multiple people write for one picture? No, I think it was just okay. like he was hired to do the right. writing. Okay. okay. I know they had some sort of artistic disagreements. Um, and I think Charles ended up writing for somebody else okay. at some point. Okay. Um, which I can kind of imagine too. Like, if you're the artist making these illustrations, and then somebody takes it and runs, it kind of makes me think of like um, musical artists, yeah. you know, who the publisher is like, "No, we're yeah, that's a country song," and you're like, "No, right. I wrote that as an R and B," or like, right. you know, right. just the totally different direction. I can see why there would be some collaboration amongst creative people. It can be very challenging, mm-hmm. like because it, yeah, you have everything in your head and you know exactly what it is, but if you don't have you know if you're you draw pictures but you don't write you can't you know, yeah you know so it's such a such yeah, a big that is really right hard there. yeah because that's that's what the artistry is that's why they're an artist is right. because they're yeah that yeah. makes sense so um like i said he and Catherine get engaged in 1835 and they get married a year later and um the following year in 18, well, I guess the year they got married, in 1836, the Pickwick papers are completed. And this was a series of um, papers that he had started. It was like, like, like you were saying earlier, you know, they, they would get paid, I'm assuming by like the word or whatever. Right. So they would, he would write these stories for the periodicals. So, yeah. you know kind of like an episode you know what we would think of as an episode now where you're getting like just a a little bit at a time yeah Yeah, like one chapter at a time yeah and you have to wait for the next one to come out it's such a it's so exciting to like think of you know having to like build that anticipation and wait and um the pickwick papers were super popular and this was a story this was his first like kind of big storyline that he had slowly leaked out bit by bit the next um, would be Oliver Twist, and this was published in 1838. Wow. And once Oliver Twist was completed, and it is, you can kind of, so it's, the this writing style is so interesting because there wasn't always a planned out novel. Right. This is, you know, this is what I want to happen to this character later on. It would kind of come out like be built as the chapters were or the series was coming out yeah and so when i read oliver twist i didn't know that it was actually a periodical where these bits would come out piece by piece and by the end of it 
it makes once I realize that it makes a lot more sense okay. because just the structure of the story is different. It's right. not really it all flows together, but it's also you're like, oh, okay, that's happening now. Like right. it's kind of um, I now that I understand that it makes I'm like, oh, I can see where those breaks were, where it, right. this was probably. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Like, I just thought all of it would was totally separate. Like, he had novels. He had his articles. Right. No. That kind yeah. of thing. But I guess it makes sense that they'd be all, like, published into a mm-hmm. book, you know. Yeah. That's cool. So, Oliver Twist was, uh, oh, yeah, I already said, um, 1838. And it was the first Victorian novel mm. because eventually, like, these stories would be put into a right. book form by themselves. Um, but it was the first Victorian novel with a child protagonist. Oh, interesting. Which I think is so cool. That is really and cool. And that's one of the things I love about Dickens' writing is, like, his connection with children. Right. You know, he never lost that. And we've talked about this so many times, but just how kids, even now, are treated. But especially back then, how they were not even people yeah. until they were adults. Yeah. And you had nothing to offer. You have... You know, you're just this. You're taking up words upon humanity and, yeah. <laughs> until I gotta you're feed an adult. you. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah. But I do think he he did not feel that way about right. children, and it shows like through his writing. Yeah. Because he was a child that went through a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, when he was writing Oliver Twist, he would write ninety pages a month. That is a lot of writing. It's a lot of writing, especially when he's doing, like, other writing, too. But he would just, like, boom, boom, boom. Wow. Just, yeah, it's really, really cool. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you next week. Um, in the meantime, follow us on Instagram to keep updated about what we got going on. If you'd like to support us, you can do that over on Spotify or Patreon.com. And then, yeah, share us with your friends. Yeah. (laughs) Bye-bye. (laughs) Bye-bye.